good morning, friends, and thanks again for your stamina. Another long passage in Daniel, but we made it. Uh, my name is Matt, and I serve as the pastor here. We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel, and we're exploring what it looks like to follow Jesus in the city, what it means for us to be a church as for urban Madison. And our passage today presents us with a subject that I think is the biggest obstacle to following God, not just following God in the city, but following God, period. And that's the subject of suffering, the the subject of the furnace. And the problem of pain is arguably one of the biggest barriers to belief in God that's out there. It's also one of the oldest objections to believing in any kind of God. If you go back all the way to the third century BC, the Greek philosopher Epicurus framed the the problem with such clarity that it's continued to be re-articulated and and reused even into this modern day of skepticism and disbelief. He, He wrote... He wrote this, is God able, willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not, on, not omnipotent. Or is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. So in other words, he's saying that his objection, that if, that if God exists in this world of suffering, either he is too weak to stop suffering, and who would worship such a puny God? Or he is willing to stop it, but, but he doesn't. And that makes a God sort of like a monster, this capricious arbitrary being that's, that isn't worthy of worship if he has the ability to stop the evil that's in front of him. And if those are the two options about God, Epicurus says, it's actually better to not believe in God at all. And when you consider the suffering that's taking place in the world right now, some of the suffering that we've prayed about, uh, the terrorism and the wanton violence against the Jewish people in Israel, the war in Ukraine, the millions of children who are starving and dying of hunger, Uh, those caught in human trafficking, the thousands of people who die every year from natural disasters, and not just to mention the the suffering that hits even closer to home uh, through the medical diagnosis or through the mental affliction that tempts us to despair or the loss of a loved one well before their time. We look at the magnitude of pain and suffering that's in the world and we can cry, where are you, God? Uh, Why aren't you doing anything? And, And it might surprise you to hear, but I think Epicurus is right on this one, that if the only two options in front of us are a God who's too weak to stop suffering or is able to stop suffering but, but, is, uh, but is unwilling, then that's not the kind of God that I want to believe in either. See, Daniel chapter 3 actually presents us with a different choice. Daniel 3 breaks the binary of, of Epicurus's dilemma by showing us a different picture of God. But before we dive into that, I do want to say at the outset that in a message on pain and suffering, one of the things that I don't want to do is to minimize or make light of the suffering that that you might find yourself in this morning. Uh, I don't know the shape of your suffering. I I don't know the contours of your condition, and I don't presume uh, in the next few moments together to give you uh, a clear three-step solution out of your particular pain and situation. But the Bible does give us some things to say about about the topic of suffering, and I do want to draw those out and help you apply that to your particular situation this morning. And if you want to talk with someone further about the particular pain and suffering that you're experiencing, I'd love to talk with you about it. Just come find me after the service and we can set a time to to talk together. But as we approach this text in light of our suffering, I want us to look at two things. First, let's consider the principle of the furnace. And then second, the God in the furnace. So the principle of the furnace and then the God in the furnace. And so as we look first at the principle of the furnace, let's reacquaint ourselves with the story 
Last week we read in Daniel chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream that made him restless and anxious. He had this dream of a giant statue with this head of gold and body of silver and uh, legs of, of bronze and feet of iron and, and clay. And, and, and he desperately wanted to know what this dream meant. And so Daniel comes and interprets this dream and says, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is, is a dream of your kingdom, but the head of gold is, is only your kingdom, that there are going to be these other kingdoms that come after you, and they're going to be different and, and lesser in quality in silver and bronze and so on. And then there's going to be this stone that demolishes the statue, your kingdom, every kingdom. And, and this stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And, uh, and then Daniel chapter 3, in, in seeming defiance of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar goes ahead and builds a statue anyway. He builds it from gold all the way down and, and says, this is my kingdom. It's going, it's going to last forever. And then he brings together all his cabinet officials and everybody high up in the government. And he says, whenever you hear the sound of this symphony, the, the trigon, the bagpipe, all these kinds of music, bow down and worship this statue. Acknowledge my, my supremacy over the kingdoms of the world. And during this assembly of all the cabinet officials, three of, the, three of these uh, leaders, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we read at the end of chapter 2 that they were promoted into this, into this assembly that, that King Nebuchadnezzar would have called together. They, they were just mysteriously absent. They decided not to come. And so somebody rats them out and brings them in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's what sets our text into motion. Nebuchadnezzar threatens to kill them, to, to cancel them, to throw them into the fire unless they bow down to the statue. And here's where we begin to see the principle of the furnace. And as simply as I can articulate it, the principle of the furnace is this, is that the furnace reveals who you truly are. The furnace reveals who you truly are, and the furnaces of life will either ruin you or refine you. The, the, the furnaces reveal who you really are, and the furnaces of life will either ruin you or refine you. All throughout the Bible, the scripture talks about uh, fire and the furnace as, as being representative of trials, uh, of suffering. And... And it's in those furnaces that it's revealed who you really are, uh, what you're really living for. And it exposes whether your creed, which you say believe, actually aligns with your character, how you actually live. And to see whether those two things have an integrity to them or whether you actually say one thing, but you're functionally living out of another set of beliefs. Whether you say you live for God, but functionally you trust in yourself or something else. So suffering has this way of getting right to the heart of things, doesn't it? And even though we don't like it, pain and suffering, they, they cut through the noise and it shows us the truest versions of ourselves. Not, not the curated or uh, filtered or put together version of ourselves we put out into the world or that even that we aspire to be to other people, but it, suffering shows you the unvarnished version of yourself, the raw, the, the unfiltered you, uh, for better or for worse. Suffering reveals the thing that's at the center of your life, the, the, your, the core of your being, the thing that you're living for. And it, and it, and it comes up to that thing and says, is it flammable? Uh, is it fragile? Will it burn to a crisp when the flames touch it? Or is the object at the, at the center of your life something that when the heat is turned up, it actually uh, transforms and turns you into something more beautiful than before? In, in, our, in our society, it's popular to say that adversity and suffering uh, our opportunities where character is shaped. And, and while there is a grain of truth to that, before suffering shapes our character, it actually reveals our character. Before sh- suffering transforms us, it reveals what's already there. And, and when you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before King Nebuchadnezzar, what do you see? You see somebody who, you, you see people who are, are displaying beautiful character, that 
they're, they're keeping their composure, or as maybe the, the uh, English writer Rudyard Kipling would have put it, they're keeping their heads while everyone else is losing theirs and blaming it on them. Uh, what you see before King Nebuchadnezzar are three people who uh, maintain their, their respect and their dignity before the king. They, they don't flaunt their religion in front of them. They're, they're polite and respectful. They, they address him with, 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 uh, with decorum and saying, Your Majesty, and O King. They, they maintain their respect and their dignity even though they're, they're facing the pressure of a furnace. And their character is exposed by, by the threat, but what you see is are individuals whose, whose creed and their character are aligned. They have this integrity to their, to their lives, that their, that their faith in God and their actions have this, have this unity to them that's, that's special and it's hard for us to, to reproduce in our day and age. So how did they become those kinds of people? They became that way because these were, these were individuals who lived in the furnace every day of their lives. They lived in the furnace of exile, of being ripped away from their homes, of, of having, uh, having uh, navigating a culture that was hostile to them and what they believed, living in exile. But they had something at their core that when the, the flames threatened it, it didn't burn them up or make them cynical or bitter, but refined them into, into people who were unflappable, people who were, who were strong in the face of difficulty. And the thing that was at the center of their lives, at their core, was their faith in their God. They believed in a God who was able to deliver his people from the furnaces and the suffering of the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, a passage that, that all these Jewish exiles would have been familiar with, Moses compared their, uh, the people of Israel's time as slaves in Egypt as a time that, where they were in the furnace of iron. And in uh, the, the book of Isaiah, another prophet that, that these men would have been familiar with, Isaiah is uh, warning the nation of, of Israel, the people of God, about their impending exile, but also about God's promise to bring them back and restore them. He talks about their time in exile as a time of being in a furnace, uh, the furnace of affliction. And so with that in mind, they, they knew that they served a God who was able uh, to bring their people through the furnaces of life. They, they, they had a God with a framework that, that suffering was not something that was arbitrary or random, but it was something that God used to shape and refine his people into something beautiful because God calls his people a, a, a special possession, a, a treasured possession. And it was a treasured possession that, had its, that was shaped through the furnace. It was shaped through the furnace. And so uh, they demonstrated a kind of faith that, that was countercultural. It, it had this uh, unique quality to it. But, and, and they said that, that they were confident that their God was going to deliver them through, through the furnace. But maybe you look at verse 18 in our passage and say, did they have faith, though? Because in verse 17, they have this confident declaration where they say that our God is able to deliver us from the furnace. But then in verse 18, they say, but if not, but, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow down. So what, what's happening there? Are, are, Shad, are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are they hedging their bets? Are they playing both sides that, you know, we, we know God's going to save us this way, but, but if not, like, God's still, you know, God's still good. He's still going to deliver us. I don't think that they're hedging their bets, but, but here's what I think that they're doing. What, what I think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing when they're, when they're saying that we're confident that God could save us, but if not, here, here's what they're saying. I, I think what they're demonstrating is that they have the humility to accept that while they know it is true that, that they have a God who can save them from the furnace, they also have the humility in, in, in admitting that they don't know how exactly God is going to save them. In other words, they're expressing their faith in God's plan for them rather than their plan for God. 
They're, they're trusting in God's plan for them rather than their plans for God. They leave it to God exactly how they're going to deliver them, either through the flames or by the flames. And that humility to trust in God's plans over, over their plans for God is something that can only be developed in the furnace. It's something that, that you can only encounter by living life a little bit, by seeing your plans frustrated, by seeing, by seeing suffering interrupt uh, the, the plan that you've, that you've set up for your life. And in, in those moments, trusting that God is going to do something, even though you're not quite sure how, he, how exactly he's going to do something. And so that humility to, to trust in God's plans for us over our plans for God is one of the ways that the, that the furnace refines us. It allows those other things that our souls find their functional rest in to burn away so that the true uh, gold of, of, of our faith remains and is refined. So that's the principle of the furnace. The principle, uh, the furnace reveals who you truly are. And the furnaces of life will either ruin you or refine you. That when the heat turns up, it'll either burn you up or it'll turn you something and turn you into someone better than before. And so if that's the principle of the furnace. Let's, let's look at the God of the furnace. You see, suffering in this life is, is unavoidable. You can't, you can't escape it. And the problem of pain is a question that all of us need to answer, not just Christians or religious people. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're reluctant to, to put your faith in, in, in the God of the Bible or, or in the Christian faith generally because of the suffering that's in the world, that, that's okay. But, but the question about what to do with suffering still remains. You can't just avoid the question just because you don't subscribe to a religious belief. When it comes to the suffering of the world, how do you account for it? How do you explain it? What, what role does suffering play? When you look at Eastern religions, uh, many Eastern faiths will tell you that suffering is just an illusion, that the suffering in the world comes from our attachments to the world, and so we avoid suffering by detaching ourselves from the world. Or if you look in, in the Western world, in our context, it, it's, it's popular to believe that suffering is pointless. Suffering has no point, that if Human, if human beings have come to where we are through this process of natural selection, survival of the fittest, this violent process where the, where, the, where the fittest come out on top, then suffering is just part of what it means to be human. You just endure it. There's, there's no point. There's no redeeming quality to it. Suffering is just a fact of life. It's indiscriminate and uncaring, and so just get on with it. But we know deep down at our core that suffering isn't natural, that, that, that suffering isn't just part of the blind, brute force of the universe, that the suffering needs to have a, a deeper explanation to it. And, it. and it needs to have a deeper explanation than just what, uh, than just what others like Epicurus have said, that this God that, who's too weak to stop suffering or too uncaring to do something about it. But in this passage and, and in the Bible generally, Christianity gives you a different answer for suffering. Christianity gives you uh, a, a different category for thinking about how we navigate the furnaces of the world. See, unlike every other system of belief or faith, uh, religious or non-religious, Christianity is unique because it offers you a God in the furnace. Christianity offers you a God who suffers. In verse 24 of our text, Nebuchadnezzar sees something extraordinary. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are thrown into the fire, and we read that, that they're walking in the midst of the flames, and they're unbound and unharmed. And even more spectacularly, there's a fourth person in the furnace with them. And Nebuchadnezzar says that his appearance is like one of the sons of the gods. So who is this person? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, you encounter this, this mysterious figure in the, dip, in, the, in the pages of the Old Testament. Sometimes, uh, and this person is usually referred to as the angel of the Lord. And sometimes this person speaks for God, uh, but in other times this, this individual speaks 
ask God. You can go to passages like Genesis 18 or Exodus 3, Joshua 5 and other places, and you see this, this figure who, who calls himself the angel of the Lord. And who exactly that figure is, I think, was relatively obscure and unknown to the writers of the Old Testament, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Didn't quite know who this figure was, but at our point in, in history, as we look back on these events, it's, it's a little bit more clear for us to see and know who this individual is, this individual that speaks for God and, and, and sometimes speaks as God. It, it's Jesus. This person is, is the Lord Jesus. It's not just one of the sons of the gods. It's, it's the son of God. And so what does that mean for us exactly? If that, if, that if the son of God is walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flames, what does that, what does that do for us? It, it means that, that we have the ultimate, the most satisfying answer to the problem of suffering. If you're here this morning and you can't bring yourself to believe in Christianity because of the furnaces of life, my question for you is, who are you going to go into the furnace with? The furnaces of life are going to come, and when they arrive, who, who, are, you going to go into the fir- who, who are you going to go into the fire with? What kind of belief in God will you take into the furnace? And what other belief in God is there than the belief in God that's offered here by, by the Son of God? When we look at Jesus, the fourth man in the furnace, we see what Nebuchadnezzar declared in verse 29, that, that there's no other God who saves like this. No other God saves like Jesus because he's the only God who has gone into the furnace. Now, God could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a thousand of other ways, but the way that he chose was to go into the furnace. And in going into the furnace, he, it paints for us a picture. It, 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 it would be a foreshadowing of what God would do one day in the future for all his people. In his earthly ministry, Jesus warned of the coming wrath of God. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus likened God's wrath to a fiery furnace, the the furnace of God's justice that humanity's inhumanity toward one another ultimately deserves. And Jesus says, I've come to go into that furnace. Here's what one commentator uh, framed it. He says that Jesus Christ came to go into the ultimate furnace for us, to take all the punishment anyone deserved, all the punishment that wickedness and evil deserved, all the punishment that selfishness deserved, all the punishment that indifference deserved, all the punishment. And he went into it willingly. He went in. This God does not rescue by just reaching down and pulling us out. He goes in. Jesus Christ is the only God who goes objectively into that ultimate furnace. No other God and no other religion talks about a God that suffers. And that answers the real problem. God came to suffer for us, and, it, and he came to suffer in our place that the, the flames of judgment uh, would consume him and leave us unbound and unharmed. And, and couldn't God have saved us another way? I mean, I, I suppose he could, but, you know, he is God after all. But it's only through this kind of death that he's able to demonstrate his love toward us. It's only through suffering that God is able to demonstrate his love. Uh, There is this philosopher professor at Calvin College, a guy named Nicholas Wolterstorff, and he wrote a book uh, called A Lament for His Son, where he's reflecting on um, the the death of his own son. And here's what what he has to write. He says, God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. 
In other words, Woltersdorf is saying that one of the only ways that you know you're loved by somebody is that they suffer with you, is that they suffer for you. Imagine, uh, imagine having a relationship with a spouse or, or with a child and say that you love that person, but then you never lift a finger to help them in their distress. That, that, that is not love. To love at all is, is to sign up for suffering. To love at all is to enter into the furnace of other people, to, to walk with them through their pain, to know that in spite of all that is going on around them, that you are there, that you're with them, that you're with them. And that's what we see on the cross. We see Jesus enduring the ultimate punishment for our sake so that, so that for us, he can walk with us in our furnaces. Uh, the tears of God are the meaning of history. And, and, and unless you embrace that truth, unless you know that there was a God who objectively went into the furnace for you, you're not going to be able to, to, to navigate or, or endure or weather the sufferings and furnaces that you're currently facing. You're, you're going to, to burn up. You're going to become cynical and bitter. You're going to shut yourself off, off, off to the world. Um, C.S. Lewis says that the only way to avoid being hurt in the world is to cease to love. But when you cut yourself off from love, you actually don't become, uh, you actually don't become more lovable. You actually become indestructible. You become indestructible because you lose your ability to love. So he says, you, you, will, not be break, you will not be broken, but you will also not be, be able to be uh, penetrated by, by the love of anybody um, because you cut yourself off from, from suffering, you cut yourself off from love. And so we have a God who comes into the world to suffer with us, to suffer for us, and, and to suffer with us. But if you do understand it, if you do experience and know God's love by believing that Jesus did this for you, that he went into the furnace of God's wrath, for you, you know, that means in all your lesser furnaces, the suffering that you find yourself in today, you know that Jesus is walking with you in the midst of it. It says, our, as our, our words of comfort tell us, that though we pass through the waters, we will not drown. Though we walk through the fires, we will not be burned because our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior is with us. And just as the ultimate furnace did not consume Jesus, but made him better than he was before through the resurrection, we can be confident that so too our lesser furnaces won't consume us, but will make us like he is. Grace and glory came on the other side of Jesus' furnace, and we can be promised that grace and glory are on the other side of our furnaces as well. See, the principle of the furnace will refine us and purify us into a beautiful people. And in the New Testament, that, that's the image that's used in First Peter, for instance. Peter talks about that though we have been grieved by various trials, we're grieved so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and as we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the city, there's a great opportunity in front of us for us to suffer well, to suffer with hope in, in a way that testifies to the world that the sufferings that, we are, that we're encountering will not have the final word, that, that suffering has an expiration date, that one day God's wrath and justice will be poured out on all the evil and injustice and death itself so completely that they will cease to exist. And so as we close, let me just offer two points of applications for our community, for this church family at Res Pres. First, uh, because God loved us by suffering for us, we have to follow Jesus as we love one another in our city by entering into the suffering of other people as well. And so if you're here this morning and you're suffering alone or you're suffering in silence, you don't have to carry that burden by yourself. Your invitation is to come and let us walk with you 
in your suffering. And if that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But secondly, as we strive to be a church that's for urban Madison, let's love the city enough to know how it suffers. Let's love the city enough to know where it hurts, whether that's systemically in, in, some of the, in some of the larger ways or whether that's a neighbor that's in need. Let's be a church that's acquainted with the suffering of our city and let's be the kind of people that respond to suffering because having been loved by Jesus, we can go and love like Jesus. The furnace is not ultimate. We have a God who suffers and is acquainted with grief. So let that truth enter into your suffering today and transform it. And let's be people who move in love to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who's not indifferent to our pain and suffering, but through Jesus Christ that you have come to walk in the fire for us and now walk in our fires with us. Help us, Lord, not to despair or lose hope, but to trust you that you are bringing about change even in the midst of our furnaces and the furnaces in our world. We pray this in his perfect and precious name. Amen.